0: Good morning. When I spoke to you a few weeks ago, I began with a brief introduction, and I want to just give you a few more details this morning. I mentioned that I met my best friend, uh, Don, in high school, and uh, we were married five years later. Uh, That uh, seems like just yesterday, but we celebrate our 49th wedding anniversary this month. God has greatly blessed us through all those years. Uh, especially by giving us two children, Katie and Stephen, and both of them, and and, uh, their spouses as well, have professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Uh, Katie and Sean have three children. Uh, Their eldest, our eldest grandchild, is Ava, good choice of a name, and uh, she's 11, and then her siblings, uh, Ryan and Charlotte. Steve and Amy have five children, Hudson, David, Robbie, Hannah, and our youngest grandson, grandchild, uh, is Matthew at one. They have certainly been a delight to us. You probably know Steve and Amy because uh, and their children because they worship here with us at Calvary. They've been a delight through these years, and I certainly agree with what Proverbs 17 says, that grandchildren are the crown of old men, uh, especially as they grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's begin with just a brief word of prayer before we look at God's word this morning. Our God and our Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to study your word this morning. Father, we would ask that you, uh, through your Holy Spirit, would open our hearts and minds to its truth this morning so that it might impress upon us uh, your will for us. And uh, we ask that you would show us uh, how it applies to each of our lives. We ask this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may remember that in the last time that we were together, our focus was spiritual living in a secular world, and we studied Daniel chapter 1. Our objective was to learn what the Bible has to say about how followers of Jesus Christ should live in today's world. A follower of Jesus Christ is a Christian, one who has been born again. Jesus told a religious person in John 3 that unless one is born again he cannot see the kingdom of God. Somewhat perplexed, the religious person then asked him what he meant by that. Part of Jesus' answer is found in John 3:16. He said, "For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life." So, what does it mean to believe in him? To believe in the Lord Jesus first means to believe He is who He claimed to be. John twenty thirty one says, But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. It also means to believe in what He did. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And when we repent and truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are born again and adopted into God's family. John 1.12 tells us that, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Paul tells us in Romans 8.29 that since we are now part of God's family, we will become like Jesus Christ. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. 1 John 3 tells us more. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. And so that brings us back to our focus this morning, then, what the Bible has to say about how a follower of Jesus Christ is to live in today's world. Our text for this morning is found in the book of Daniel, chapter 2. And I'm reading from the New American Standard translation. In chapter 1, we were introduced to Daniel, a man who was surrounded by a pagan culture. And yet he pleased God with his integrity and his obedience. You remember that he had three close friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. As young teenagers, they had been selected for a special purpose and had been taken captive by the Babylonians. The plan was to mold them into loyal Babylonian civil servants through an immersive three year educational program which aimed to change their beliefs, their customs, and their personal habits. But Daniel and his three friends maintained their integrity even in the face of mounting social pressure from the culture, peer pressure from their fellow captives, and even the threat of death from the Babylonians. The key to this was that they acknowledged God's sovereignty and they understood that he knew all about their situation. They humbly recognized that it was God who had intervened in their lives by giving them knowledge and intelligence, and it was God who had caused them to succeed and prosper. At the end of the three-year program, the king found them to be without equal. There was no one else like the four of them. He was so impressed with them that he appointed them to his personal service. Let's go now to Daniel chapter 2 at verse 1. Now, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Daniel gives us detailed information here about this event taking place in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. His father, Nabopolassar had died in August of 605 B.C., about the time of the siege of Jerusalem. And so Nebuchadnezzar returned home from his military campaign in the West to take his place on the throne. But you might wonder... Hmm. Daniel and his three friends had completed a three-year training program, and this is the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. How could that be? Well, the Babylonians counted the years of a king's reign by full calendar years. So the partial year of Nebuchadnezzar's ascension to the throne in 605 would not be counted in the total. So even though Daniel had been in Babylon for three years, Nebuchadnezzar had only completed two full calendar years as king. Verse 2. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. Did you notice what Nebuchadnezzar said? I had a dream... And my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Not, I had a dream and I can't remember it. Not, I'm anxious to remember the dream and to know its interpretation. The Chaldeans, the wise men, say, all right, we can do that. Tell us the dream and we'll get right down to work. But what does Nebuchadnezzar say next? Verse 5. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The command for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream... And its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar gets very upset. Why? Why did he demand to know the dream and its interpretation? Many people think it's because he could not remember his dream. But the text is clear. Nebuchadnezzar had not forgotten his dream. Verses 1 and 2 tell us he had dreams plural. It's very likely that he had this dream more than once. Again, notice that he says he's anxious to understand the dream, not to remember it. His advisors again asked him to tell them the dream. They wouldn't ask this if he couldn't remember it. They knew that they could not risk making something up because the king knew what he had dreamt. Verse 8, the king answered and said, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time, inasmuch as you have seen that the command for me is firm, that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you, for you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. The magicians, the sorcerers, conjurers, Chaldeans, who may have been astrologers, were Nebuchadnezzar's advisors, and they were involved in the occult. Nebuchadnezzar concluded that if someone could ascertain the meaning of a dream through occult powers, then it would be a simple thing to provide the content. If someone could provide him with the correct details of the dream, then that would be proof that their interpretation would be correct, too. Nebuchadnezzar responds to what he thinks is a stalling tactic, he assumes his advisors are afraid to give him bad news. In Babylon, the interpretation of dreams was dependent upon the position of the stars in the planets. If time passed, the Chaldean astrologers could say that they couldn't do their work because the positions of the stars and planets had now changed. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of a magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare to the king except God's whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Here, God uses these men to set the stage for what is about to take place through his servant Daniel. Verse 12. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. With this statement, we get a look into the character of Nebuchadnezzar. He was not someone who took no for an answer. In fact, he had quite a temper. The word that's translated as that phrase, very furious, means to become enraged, literally to burst out in anger. He explodes with anger and says, kill them all. This is now a serious personal crisis for all the king's personal advisors. Talk about having a bad day at work. Let's think about our world today. How does the average person react when faced with a serious personal crisis? Many react with worry and become anxious. Some get angry and lash out in an emotional response. For many, the only resolution seems to be to take matters into their own hands so that they can then say or do whatever it takes to resolve the issue or to escape from it. And in their way of thinking, the ends justify the means. So it's the outcome that matters. Why might a Christian, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, react to a personal crisis with anxiety, worry, or even anger? Could it be a lack of faith in God's sovereignty? God is sovereign, meaning he has supreme rank, authority, and power because he is above all others in character, importance, and excellence. Or could it be an incorrect understanding of God and his attributes? For example, his love, his omnipotence, his righteousness, or even his omniscience. J.B. Phillips once wrote a book titled, Your God is Too Small. He wrote at a time when advances in science and technology were rapidly changing the world, and there was much political and international tension, much like today. He encouraged Christians to examine their understanding of the Creator, the one sovereign God, and then to discard any incorrect labels or constraints. He urged his readers to replace their inaccurate thoughts with the truth about God that we find in the Bible. Can you think of an example in Scripture of someone whose God was too small? Someone who was in a crisis and reacted by taking matters into their own hands? Do Remember King Saul? The prophet Samuel gave him explicit instructions in 1 Samuel 10, And you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. We see the situation that Saul faced in 1 Samuel 13. He was experiencing a crisis in government. He was faced with a large, strong enemy. He and his people were terrified, terrified. And so, how did Saul respond? When things began to go badly, he became anxious and took matters into his own hands. He believed that it was up to him to find a way to solve the problem, any way that would get him out of that terrible situation. And so, Saul was disobedient in the hope of finding a way to escape. He then justified what he did, saying he had no choice but to disobey. He argued that this extraordinary crisis required extraordinary measures. After all, he had to find a a solution. He told Samuel that he forced himself to do what only a priest was qualified to do, and he offered the sacrifices to God himself. And then we see the result in verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, but now your kingdom shall not endure. In contrast, notice what David says in Psalm 108, when he's in a similar situation and about to go into battle. First, in verse 4, he declares, For your loving kindness is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and your glory above all the earth. Then later in verse 12, Oh, give us help against the adversary, for deliverance by man is in vain. Through God we shall do valiantly, and it is he who will tread down our adversaries. David begins with statements about the sovereignty of God and the love of God, and then he ends with statements about his reliance on God in a personal crisis. He recognized that it was only God who could give him victory. Psalm 37, which is also a psalm of David, tells us to cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. For evil doers will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Did you notice that? Anger and worry lead only to evil doing. Anger and worry or fretting are two very destructive emotions. They reveal a lack of faith in the God who loves us and who is in control of every detail of the universe. We should not worry. Instead, we should trust God, obeying him no matter what the situation, giving ourselves to him for his purposes and safekeeping. When we dwell on our problems, we become anxious and angry. But if we concentrate on God and his attributes and his goodness, we'll find peace. We are often confused by the events around us. We can't figure out a reason why these things happen. Or if we do come up with a reason that makes sense to us, it's likely that we're far from the truth. True, there are many things that we will never understand. The purpose or meaning of some experiences may fall into place only years later as we look back and see how God was working. But we can trust that God knows what he is doing now, even if his timing and design are not clear to us. Isaiah 55 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Because of the ill effects of worry, Jesus tells us to put things in their proper perspective and not to worry. In Matthew 6, 25, Jesus says, For this reason I say to you, Do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Worrying can damage your health. Medical research tells us that worrying can trigger a host of physical problems. Worrying may not only do damage to your body, but it can also damage your mental health. It can cause the object of your worry to consume your thoughts. It can disrupt your productivity negatively affect the way you treat others, and most importantly, reduce your ability to trust God. Now, there is a difference between worry and genuine concern. As we read, worry leads only to evildoing. But even with concern, we must think clearly and understand the difference between concern and control. What we do have control over is our attitude and our behavior. And while recognizing that God is sovereign, we must remember that he also asks us to pray. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 instructs us to pray continually. James 5.13 says, is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. 1 Peter 4.7 tells us to be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. So let's see what we can learn from Daniel's example about how we should react to a personal crisis. First, to set the context, let's read verse 12 again. We see that Daniel received some very bad news. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. And how did Daniel react to this situation? Verse 14, Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Ariarch the king's commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? First, notice how he replies to the man who had come to execute him. Not in a panic, but with discretion and discernment. Discretion is defined as prudence, caution, and good judgment. Discernment means wisdom, and the word that's used here infers acting in good taste with proper manners and decorum. Second, we see that he learned the facts of the matter. He confirmed the truth. And this is a very important step. In times of trouble, the rumor mill goes into overdrive. Verse 15, then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. Third, Daniel now does something very wise. He slowed things down. He asked the king for time. Dr. Peter Jensen is a sports psychologist who has helped over 70 Canadian athletes win Olympic medals. One of his strategies is to help these athletes maintain their focus in the stress of competition. His advice is helpful in any stressful situation when our normal response is to lose focus and rush to react. He sums up his message in a simple piece of advice. When you're in a hurry, dress slowly. In other words, slow things down so you can think clearly and act deliberately rather than reacting emotionally. Daniel was a wise man. He knew this. His confidence was built on the truth that God is absolutely sovereign. Verse 16. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Now, that's real confidence. Fourth, Daniel gathers his friends to share the news. You remember that one of the seven principles of maintaining your integrity that we learned was that we must be accountable to and encouraged by other believers. Ecclesiastes 4 tells us, Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion, but woe to the one who falls when there's not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. So, verse 17, Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter. Why did he do this? Because misery loves company? No, we see why in verse 18, so they could pray. This is another reason to slow things down in order that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his friends might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So fifth, we see that they spent time in prayer. And we see the result in verse 19. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. And what was Daniel's response? What did he do first? Did he immediately run to the king with his information to protect his life in case the king had grown impatient? No. He paused to praise God and to give him thanks. And the verses that follow here are one of the best summations of God's sovereignty that we find in Scripture. We also see his answer to prayer and his intervention in world affairs. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. And it is he who changes the times and the the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Notice the truth about God that Daniel shares in a statement of praise. He humbly gives complete credit to God in these verses. And then, after he has praised God for revealing the dream and the interpretation, only then does he act. Verse 24. Then Daniel went into, into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation of the king. Daniel, again, acts with discretion and discernment. He reports to the person in charge. He doesn't run directly into the king. And notice that Daniel isn't just concerned about himself and his friends. He could have been. This was his chance to get ahead and to eliminate the competition. No, he also acts with compassion. Notice that it's before he sees Nebuchadnezzar, he unselfishly asks Ariok to spare all the wise men of Babylon. Verse 25. Then Ariok hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. So Daniel gets an audience with Nebuchadnezzar. But notice first here a little example of human nature. Arioch takes credit for himself. He says, I have found a man who has the answer for you. Verse 26, the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Now notice Daniel's reply and whom Daniel credits for solving the mystery. Verse 27, Daniel answered before the king and said, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your head while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future and he reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place." Daniel includes himself in that statement in verse 27, and then notice what he says about himself in verse 30. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me, more than any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king, and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. He says that this revelation did not take take place because of his special abilities or his high IQ or anything else about him, but because it was God's purpose. So, what do we learn from Daniel's spiritually mature response to this challenging situation? First, when he received some bad news, he replied with discretion and discernment. He then learned the facts, and he asked for time to slow things down. When he was faced with an impossible problem, he gathered with others for prayer. When God answered their prayers, God gave praise and thanksgiving to God. And last of all, when he had success, he responded with humility and compassion, and he recognized God's sovereignty. True peace does not depend on your circumstances or your surroundings. Isaiah 12.2 says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. To trust means to have a firm belief in God's sovereignty, in the abilities and strength of God, and in his dependability and trustworthiness. Back to our text, verse 29. Daniel gives some information about Nebuchadnezzar's frame of mind. He was thinking about the future. He may have been troubled about it and was unable to sleep. As for you, O King, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. What is the normal human response when faced with uncertainty? Very simply, uncertainty creates anxiety. I learned this very early on in my career, first as a high school teacher and then later as a principal and superintendent. My students were always worried about what would be covered on tests and examinations. But if I reviewed the types of questions that would be asked and assured them that there would be no surprise questions, much of that anxiety disappeared. As an administrator, I was often required to make decisions that would affect the lives of others. I soon learned that to most, the actual decision I made was not nearly as important as the timeliness of that decision. Once I made a decision, even if it was unpopular, nevertheless, a decision had been made and my staff and students now had certainty. True, there may have been some disagreement or disappointment, but there was no more anxiety. Everyone knew what was planned for the way ahead. They had certainty. And so we see in the last part of verse 29 that Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar <clears throat> that God is going to give him certainty. He is going to tell him the future. And he reveals mysteries has made, to you, made known to you what will take place. Daniel says this with certainty because he knows that God is sovereign. He says what will take place. Notice that Daniel is again giving God the credit. He describes God as the one who reveals mysteries. In verse 30, Daniel explains the reason why he has been given this information to share with Nebuchadnezzar, that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. He then begins by telling Nebuchadnezzar the content of his dream in great detail. Verse 31. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a great, a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. After having this dream, Nebuchadnezzar is agitated. He can't sleep. Some commentators think that perhaps the face of the great statue looked like him. And notice now what happens beginning in verse 34. The statue was crushed, ground into chaff, and the wind blows the dust away. No wonder he's concerned. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed All at the same time, it became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel now begins the interpretation of the dream in verse 36. This was the dream. Now we shall tell the interpretation before the king. Now notice, he doesn't stop to ask if he's correct. Nebuchadnezzar knows that Daniel must now have the correct interpretation too. Verse 37, you, O king, are the king of kings. You are the head of gold. Daniel identifies only one part of the statue, the head in detail. It represents Nebuchadnezzar. Now, notice what he says with his identification of Nebuchadnezzar, beginning in verse 37. To whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and caused you to rule over them all. What point is Nebuchadnezzar, sorry, is Daniel making here to Nebuchadnezzar? God is sovereign. Now here's a spoiler alert. Nebuchadnezzar's failure to acknowledge this leads to his downfall in chapter 4. Then beginning in verse 39, Daniel interprets the rest of the dream. A series of empires will follow Babylon, one for each different part of the statue. Daniel doesn't identify the second kingdom, but history tells us who this is. This is the Medo-Persian Empire that defeated Babylon in 539 B.C. Some commentators think that the silver in the statue represented the system of taxation that the Medo-Persians introduced, with the taxes, of course, to be paid in silver. The third kingdom is the Greek Empire, represented by bronze. Alexander the Great marched into Babylon in 331 B.C., and that empire lasted until about 200 B.C. The two thighs represent the eventual division or two-part division in the empire with centers of power in Syria and Egypt. The Greek empire is characterized by bronze because of its army. The Medo-Persians wore turbans, tunics, and trousers into battle. The Greeks had helmets, shields, and swords made of bronze. And that phrase, which will rule over all the earth, represents the actual title that Alexander the Great took for himself as king, Over all the earth. The fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, represents Rome, the strongest empire. One of the characteristics of this empire was that it began to control more and more of the daily life of its citizens. Notice that a double verb is used here in verse 40 to stress the destructive force of this empire. Rome crushed all resistance, it fragmented and reassembled the people it conquered socially, culturally, and politically. The phrase feet and toes in verse 41 obviously implies two legs. The Roman Empire was divided. The Eastern Empire, with its capital in Byzantium or Constantinople, lasted until 1453. The Western Empire, with its capital in Rome, lasted for 500 years. Some commentators think that this phrase iron mixed with clay may represent the intrusion of the common man into government. Subsequent weakening, they believe this could refer to a form of democracy. So the phrase it will be a divided kingdom is then a reference to a later revival of the Roman Empire. It's described as an empire that is not united. There are too many rulers and therefore no solidarity. The ten toes represent a ten-nation confederacy. We see that same confederacy described in Daniel 7 and then again in Revelation 17. The original Roman Empire was never really defeated and replaced. It gradually faded away, but it will be revived. It is present, though, when the stone comes and smashes it. Verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. In verses 35 and 44, we see the characteristics of this last kingdom illustrated in the dream. First, it will be eternal. We see that it is not passed on to another and that it endures forever. Second, it will be powerful. It crushes all the others and puts an end to them. It fills the entire earth. And so I believe that this is the second coming of Christ and the establishment of the millennial kingdom that is described in Revelation chapter 20. Now, I must note that there are a variety of interpretations for some parts of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, especially uh, the parts of this stone kingdom. As early as the first century, we see an interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's image in the writings of the Jewish historian Josephus. By the third century, other interpretations were offered. And again, at the time of Reformation, we find a renewed interest. During the last 200 years, there have been four major schools of prophetic interpretation of the book of Daniel, and you may have your preference. That's beyond our scope this morning. So I'll simply offer the interpretation that the early church fathers generally agreed upon. They agreed that there were four kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. The understanding of the so-called stone kingdom had two parts. The stone cut without hands refers to Christ's incarnation. And the stone destroying the image and grinding it to dust symbolizes the second coming of Christ. Now back to our text. Daniel now reminds Nebuchadnezzar that it is God who has revealed this information. Verse 45. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. And in verse 46 we see, The king's response. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present him with an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Here, at least momentarily, Nebuchadnezzar recognizes the sovereignty of the one true God. But unfortunately, he's not been converted. He simply recognizes this God as the highest of all the gods that he worshipped. Daniel is then promoted and receives many great gifts. What do you think Daniel's perspective was on his promotion and the rewards that he was given? Well, based on what we know about him from chapter 1 and chapters 2 and 5, I believe it was similar to what David said in 1 Chronicles 29. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty, indeed everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, O God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. Surely we, too, could use this as a reminder when we begin to puff ourselves up with pride in our status or our accomplishments. Then note what Daniel does in verse 49. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. Daniel's three friends were certainly qualified to serve, but here we see Daniel making a special request of Nebuchadnezzar so that his friends might share in the recognition and rewards that he was experiencing. He unselfishly shares the benefits with those who had been petitioning the Lord with him. So this is quite a story outlining God's sovereignty throughout history. But what else can we take away from it for today? This chapter teaches us about God's omnipotence and omniscience and his absolute authority in the course of human history. God is sovereign. He has a plan. Future events are known to him and come to pass according to his purposes. God is and will be victorious. Knowing this to be true then, how should I respond, especially in the midst of a serious personal crisis? I can trust God with every detail of my life and circumstances. I can have unwavering confidence in God because I have certainty. I know that he is in control of all things, and therefore I will be anxious for nothing. Philippians 4, 6 makes it clear, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. True peace is not found in positive thinking, or in good feelings, or even in a lack of conflict. It comes from knowing and firmly believing that God is holy, loving, righteous, and absolutely sovereign, and therefore in total control. As a follower of Jesus Christ, one who is born again, my eternal future is secure. I have certainty. Jesus says in John 10, And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. It is only when I truly believe this that I can be free of worry and protected by the peace of God that is so wonderful that it cannot be explained. Let's read that last passage again from Philippians 4. This time we start just at the end of verse 5. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word together this morning. Father, we praise you. The fact that you are the creator, the one sovereign God who has made all things and controls all things. Father, we give you praise and worship for who you are and what you have done. Father, help us to understand our place in your universe. Father, we bow before you this morning. Help us to accept the fact that we are creatures. We'd ask, Father, that you would conform us to the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a life of perfect obedience. And, Father, we'd ask that you would help us to be obedient to what we find in your Word. Father, we ask this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.